Welcome back, citizens, to another episode of the Digital Dust Podcast. I'm Liz. I'm Robin. I'm Katie. And I'm Batman. Oh, there it is. Oh, man. I literally thought of that a month ago. And I've been so excited for this one moment. <laughs> I can't believe we were able to get Robert Pattinson on this podcast. <laughs> oh, my God. Hey I left him in Twilight. If, uh, if this movie doesn't do well, I'm going to go into porn. Yeah. <laughs> did he say that? Yeah. Only that. option. <laughs> he did. Oh, love that man. Yeah, Good. that's him. So, if the uh, if the intro didn't give it away, this is our superhero episode, The History of Superheroes, uh, which I'll be helming. This is like last season when we had Liz with uh, Witchcraft, and then later Katie and, and the Iliad. Uh, this is this is the thing that I am obsessive about, and know way too much about. Uh, and I'm just so excited to teach you guys about it. It's going to be so fun. I'm so excited. This is going to be a lot of me talking, so it's going to be like a normal episode. So, <clears throat> without further ado... Uh, are you guys ready? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ready. Yeah. Okay. So, I just want to quickly kind of explain what the outline of the episode is going to be. So, there's a lot of superheroes in the world. (laughs) And so, I I wanted to try and narrow down this topic a little bit so it wasn't just a really broad overview. I still chose a very broad overview, but it's slightly less. (laughs) Perhaps 51% less. 50% less. In any case. So... This episode is going to be about the history of women in superhero comics, uh, whether that is as love interests, as superheroes, as villains. We got it all. This episode is going to cover a lot of different things. It's really exciting. And I want to obviously address the fact... Well, okay, firstly, I came up with this idea to focus on women because of Women's History Month uh, that we're in in right now in in March. But I also obviously got to recognize that I'm literally the only guy on this podcast with three female (laughs) co-hosts. And so... I could not come up with this episode by myself. That that just didn't seem fair to me. But I am, of course, the the expert on superheroes out of the four of us. And so the way I, I tried to mitigate that as much as possible was to essentially outline the episode based on characters that you guys, you three, wanted to know more about. And so I, I will say I, I talk about a lot of a lot of female characters in this episode for sure. But uh, it all focuses around between three and six big figures that that uh, you guys wanted me to talk about. And through those figures, we'll talk about bigger themes, things like what a love interest is and, and what a femme fatale is and that sort of thing. And we'll go through all that uh, as well. So there's a lot to cover. I'm so excited and I want to just get into it, but there are a few more little things I got to say. Firstly, to our audience, comic books are a visual medium. And so if you can... It might help to have some sort of visual reference if you want to look stuff up throughout the episode uh, uh, while you're listening. If, if you have that capability, uh, that would be pretty helpful because a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about is actually quite visual. I have with me a whole bunch of comic books. Um, not everything that we're going to cover, but I, I have I have sticky noted them so that I'm able to... Uh, hold on. Like, that's not a little amount of comic <laughs> books. How many are there? Oh, there's like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, at least 15, probably. <laughs> Wow. And that, that only covers part of whom we're going to discuss today. Uh, <laughs> wow. It's a season finale. You got to go up. big. You know, <laughs> you got to go big. Or go home. Exactly. So in any case, uh, it, it, I'll have visual references for you guys. But uh, for our listeners, it might be nice uh, to look stuff up. Uh, also, uh, as another disclaimer, I have absolutely not included every female comic book character ever. Some ones I wished I could talk about were characters you. like, I'm so sorry, Katie. I'm so sorry. But characters that I wanted to talk about. People like Aunt May, who's like a maternal figure. I thought she'd be interesting. Unfortunately, she couldn't make it because of time constraints. Uh, characters like Raven and Zatanna, who are more magical figures from the DC universe, would be really interesting to talk about as well. I, I mainly say this because, folks, we are dealing with possible superhero fans in the audience with us. And while the overwhelming majority are kind and positive from my own experience watching superhero YouTube channels, a loud few can be incredibly picky and angry or angry uh, if I say one thing wrong or don't include a particular character. So, to those very minor few, uh, if you're upset or wish I included something else, just be nice in your reply or uh, I just won't engage with uh, with the conversation. I'm happy to chat about this stuff, but only when decent courtesy to be as a human being is aptly uh, acknowledged, which is a fucked up thing that I have to say, which kind of sucks. But anyway, uh, also because uh, this sometimes helps to mitigate that, I just want to 
quickly say how I'm a superhero fan in terms of like what I know about. I never grew up with comic books. I didn't really have a local comic book store, so I grew up mostly with cartoons, video games, and Wikipedia. So I know a lot about the characters, and I know a lot about their powers, and about their personalities, and the way they interact with other characters. But I, I for the longest time, didn't know as much about comic books themselves. So uh, if they're listed, which they definitely aren't, but Comic Pop and NerdSync are two really great YouTubers, YouTube channels that deal with superhero stuff, where I get quite a bit of this this content from, as well as just kind of kind of what I piecemealed and, and learned along the way. All right. Now that that's done, the next thing I, I want to talk about are some, a few definitions as we go through. When I say the word run, if I say like X run or something, that means like a, a series of comic book volumes written by the same person. So like over four years, let's say one particular writer writes Superman. That would be like X's superhero, super, Superman run or something. That would be the term run that I would use. Uh, the word book is often used to talk about comic books. Sometimes I'll use the word comic when I'm talking about like a single issue, but normally I'll be talking about sort of like the actual book itself. So for example, like Spider-Man has over 500 issues, I think at this point, since 1963. Uh, so all of those issues I might talk about as, you know, the Spider-Man book or the Amazing Spider-Man book, which is the, the title of the book and that sort of thing. And then the most important definition, and this will guide us right into our actual topic for today, is a term known as women in refrigerators. It is a very important term for what we're going to be discussing today and the broader themes that we're going to be looking at throughout countless heroes and villains and so forth. And it was coined by comic books writer Gail Simone in 1999. She's one of, one of the, the few well-known female comic book writers. She's phenomenal. Uh, I'll get to her in a, a bit more detail later on. But Women in Refrigerators refers to the various ways, and this is terrible, the various ways women characters are used to drive the plot of a male character's story forward in comics, particularly through injury, rape and sexual assault, murder and death, or depowerment. The term itself comes from an issue of Green Lantern, issue 54 from 1994. Uh, the <laughs> Green Lantern at the time was Kyle Rayner, and Kyle comes home to his apartment and finds uh, his girlfriend, uh, Alexandria DeWitt, who has been killed by a villain and stuffed into Rainer's refrigerator. Wow. Like, Somebody <laughs> drew that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now he's like, oh, my ice cream got all melted. <laughs> but yeah, so that, and, and clearly the, the, the reason for coining it after this particular instance, because it was a big outrageous moment of like, holy shit, you, you can't do that to, uh, to yeah. a, a female character. If you like, like that, that's not, that's not what you should do. And so Simone and other writers made a list, and they have a website, and it's still up. It looks kind of like a hacker website. Like, it looks like you shouldn't trust it, like it's going to give you a virus, because it was made in 1999, and I don't <laughs> think they've changed the layout at all. But, uh... If it ain't broke. Right? Honestly. But yeah, so on that website, Simone and other writers have made a list of female characters who are treated this way, uh, and, and posted it there. And yeah. So, women in refrigerators is a term that will probably come up as, as, as we talk about things, these things more generally. Sweet. Yeah, so there's that. A couple other like sort of general things I want to say. DC Comics in the 1960s had their own in-house policy on the treatment of women characters, and it is, I quote, the inclusion of females in stories is specifically discouraged. Women, when used in plot structure, should be secondary in importance and should be drawn realistically without exaggerated or feminine physical qualities. That has literally been, that was their statement in the 1960s about, about women. Oh my lord. I was expecting something really progressive because they had even thought to make a statement about women. Right. <laughs> so is the oh. river. Yeah. The, the comic books code authority, which is something we do not have time to get into, but it's, it's a big sort of group of people that, that essentially rate whether comic books are appropriate for children or not. So the comic books code authority, when it was enforced, forced female representation to remain conservative and traditional. So not very sexual and that sort of thing. Which is interesting with, when we get into the actual examples of these different characters and what's going to go on with them. And in the 1980s, that was really when the, the sexualization of female characters came into play and really ramped up. This is because of just a, a generally less widely conservative culture and a more rebellious culture for teenage art and writing and that sort of thing. So in the 80s is really when uh, the sexualization of, of female characters really started to ramp up. Okay, here's our first character, our first anecdote. It's hilarious that it's not one that you guys asked me for, but I think it is too perfect not to start with. Her name is Power Girl. And Power Girl, you can you can look up a photo if you'd like a Power Girl. 
but there's an anecdote uh, of the themes that we'll be discussing throughout the entire episode. It's a real conglomerate of, of all the themes that we'll look at. So this is a story that editors at DC Comics had a rule about boob size. Oh, whoa, there's a lot oh, of Oh my yeah. god. Wally Wood, artist for Power Girl, tried to test this and see if her uh, his, his editor would notice, continually increasing the size of Power Girl's boobs, as well as what is actually, and I shit you not, known as the boob window, which is the hole in the chest where her costume shows her cleavage. Yeah, yeah, because she has like a high neckline. Yeah. But then there's just like a big chunk. Yeah, yeah. It's like right there, that's all there is in these images. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, oh I just, I just see boobs. Yeah, so uh, the, the boob window is actually a commonality. This is the first image that I'm showing you. It's of Spider-Woman, who has actually no connection to Spider-Man. But Spider-Woman, you can tell, also has a similar yeah. sort of thing going on where her costume completely outlines her boobs. And, that's, and it's an actual like industry term, I guess, known as the boob window, or at least cultural term known as the boob window. So in any case, so so the story goes, he wanted to test the limits of this boob size policy at DC Comics, and so each issue he continually drew the boobs bigger and bigger and bigger to see how far he could go. Now, there was a lot of doubt that this story is actually true, but it received a ton of circulation in the superhero fan community. Even if it is untrue, though, it does reveal some pretty clearly sexism, pretty clear sexism. First, a boob window legit exists, which is nuts. Uh, as a term, what the fuck? In addition to blatantly sexualizing women characters, uh, it also not—it's uh, also not practical for heroes who want to protect vulnerable areas like their heart. Anyway, so that's true. <laughs> the boobs will protect the heart. There you go. Yeah. Don't you understand? Yeah. <laughs> Extra skin. Don't worry. So Jessica Plummer, who's a journalist for BookRiot.com, highlighted the her-her nature of the story, calling the story slobby and indicative of male audiences who only think about boobs and not superhuman powers for women characters. She writes, it probably didn't help that Power Girl was introduced as a feminist icon. So when she was actually written, she was written to be uh, sort of like a, an icon for feminism. And so Power Girl. it's all wrapped up in very weird. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So that's Power Girl. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, oh, we yeah. did this, but you can't Absolutely. get mad because so, yeah. it's for so women empowerment. The, but it's I want to like, start oh, with this because anytime you talk about women in comics and, and that sort of topic, this story inevitably yeah. comes up. And, and yeah. I think it's a great anecdote that... that while the story is horrible, really highlights both the the like the sexualization of female superheroes, but also as as this journalist said, the her her kind of nature of these sorts of stories that they're not taken seriously. It's like, oh, isn't that hilarious that her boobs are just so big? That's why. What the heck? And it, anyway, so I think that that story really frames our conversation. All right, now for our first actual hero uh, or character, rather I should say, uh, asked for us by Liz. So Liz, you wanted me to talk about Wonder Woman. Of course. She is a great, obviously a great character in general, but a really good one to start with because, of course, she is the first female superhero. And she was introduced in the early 1940s, so she was right up there with yeah. Superman and Batman in terms of really early characters to be created. She was created in the same decade as Captain America and two decades before any of the Avengers or Spider-Man or anything like that. So she is the first female superhero and, and really, really early on. Uh, she's an Amazonian warrior. Since her creation, she's had a lasso of truth and indestructible bracelets. So her powers are a little bit feminine and her, her uh, weapons are a little bit feminine in terms of what she uses. Especially the bracelet idea, I think. But while, you know, she has... did start with those things, she eventually did have like a sword and a shield. And often enough, those elements are also a part of her character as we get more into the modern age of comics. Uh, she has ancient Greek origins, of course, and additionally, while commonly known as a warrior woman, uh, as all Amazonians are, she's often thought of as a pacifist, a person who can actually kick your ass, obviously, when necessary, but uh, will try to resolve problems peacefully, thoughtfully, and maturely first. She's a really interesting layered kind of character. She's from Themyscira, originally known very bluntly as Paradise Island, which is an island full of only women. So for the creator, the island is only women and it's paradise, it's great. She's similar to ancient Greek island Lesbos, where Sappho lived, which is a clear nod to lesbianism. In fact, actually, some of her original catchphrases were things like suffering Sappho, which he thinks that she shouted people, which is quite hilarious. Yeah, it's pretty good, right? Okay, so she was created by psychologist William Marsden, who is heavily inspired by his wife, uh, wife Elizabeth and their life partner, Olivia Byrne, <laughs> both of which were inspiration for That's her good. appearance. So, yes, I would like to... <laughs> I would like to pause here for a moment and say, 
Wonder Woman's creator was a psychologist and a man, which is interesting, but he was in a polyamorous oh, relationship. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh. Hold up. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, but his psychology background is actually very important because his research was in the idea of dominance and submission and the human drive for things like dominance and submission. And so he he believed that bondage wow. was a really important and tangible way to demonstrate the natural dominance, dominance and submission of people. And his colleagues weren't really down for this sort of research in the 40s. <laughs> no way. I can't way. picture that in the 1940s, no. Yeah, exactly. So so he turned to comic books because he thought that, that while his colleagues saw them as, as sort of like demeaning and not real sort of intellectual literature, he thought that they were a really excellent gateway to get at the minds of young people and to teach people at a young age to respect women and present stories where women were dominant and men were submissive to essentially show the idea that women could be could be dominant too. So it's a really interesting feminist origin. Instead of most male writers who, who write what they assume is contemporary feminism and women's liberation and that sort of thing, Wonder Woman, her creator is still a male writer, but one who deeply believes in the power of women and the, and the power dynamic of dominance and submission between men and women in society, which is a, a high level of thinking that isn't often recognized when creating female characters. So is, she's really, really distinct that way. All right, we're going to move to the next thing, which is that Wonder Woman, of course, unfortunately, and this theme will come up with pretty well every character, I'm sure, is still sexualized, uh, obviously. While again, in modern comics, especially in the last like decade or so, she's often depicted with more clothing and battle gear on her. If you look at classic, sort of famous images of Wonder Woman, she has no pants and basically an entirely open back. Like, if, like it is, it is a backless dress, but like literally all the way down to basically her butt. Like the entire, like, yeah, it's, uh, if you have a chance to look at some images, there, there are some that are, uh, very revealing, I should say. An obvious example of the sexualization of Wonder Woman comes from Gal Gadot, actually, which is really, really interesting because this, this is not about the way she looks necessarily in terms of her costume, but rather the perception against her. So it, not only are female characters sexualized, but often the male perception towards the character has to do with things like uh, sort of boob size or general sort of like girth, I guess is the best word to describe it. What I mean to say is that in the case of Gal Gadot, when she was cast as Wonder Woman way back in like 2015 for Wonder Woman, one of the biggest complaints from the comic book community came from men who said that, that her boobs were too small, that, that Amazonians were bigger and, and tall and like thick or whatever, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, I remember that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and she was too skinny and, and not, uh, strong enough. Doesn't but... she have like D cups or something? I'm gonna look up Gal Gadot. I don't know, Katie, but sense. yeah, please look that up for me. <laughs> I'm not gonna look up the size of her cups. They're like, I can't sexualize you like this, so I'm mad. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And and Robin, I really like what, what you said there in that, like, a lot of the debate was about the size of Gal Gadot and that she was too skinny and stuff. But it was that was really a coded way to say that she had two small boobs. That was essentially. Yeah, that was it. So, yeah, there's a lot of sexualization, both in terms of how the character is depicted and sometimes in terms of how the character is deceived when they're not depicted that way. So. It's sort of a double-edged sword in, the, in that context. But I want to end Wonder Woman on a happy note because she has such a kick-ass origin story. So there is a point that I found regarding her lack of clothes from a feminist lens. Uh, th th this comes from Zoe Williams in an article in The Guardian. So I quote here, she says, Yes, she is sort of naked all the time, but this isn't objectification so much as cultural reset. Having thighs, actual thighs you can kick with, not thighs that look like arms, is a feminist act. The whole Diana myth, women safeguarding the world from male violence, not with nurture, but with better violence, is a feminist act. I think, I just think that's a really interesting take on, on her sort of, the way that she's drawn and, and, and that sort of thing. So take that what you will. But uh, Liz, that, that, do you have any questions about Wonder Woman before we move on? I don't think so. Uh, the one thing I had, because you mentioned that she, like her, the lasso of truth and like her weapons. Mm -hmm. And I immediately, okay, I know that, like, there is a Supergirl, and so she's, no, like, Wonder Woman is not the direct counterpart of Superman, but I always just assume that. Oh, yeah. It made me, it made me start thinking, I'm like, do, like, I wonder if, like, because I feel like more female superheroes have, like, weapons and tools, whereas more men, like, male superheroes, like Superman, like, they are the weapon. 
and they just do everything with like brawn. But then you think of, like Batman, for example, he has a lot of fun tools and stuff. But like, does he it's need true. them? I don't know. But like Spider Man, he is one that also like depending on which universe you're in, <laughs> does he just happen to have spider juice? Organic web juice. Oh, spider, <laughs> juice. spider juice. <laughs> I don't know. What... <laughs> no, that's honestly no. You're right. That's exactly what you should call it. It's disgusting. Yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, no, that's yeah. that's a really great point. What, what I also want to point out, which is interesting as well, is that her weapons are really passive, especially the creation of a, as a character. Yeah. So it's like her... a lasso is such a weird weapon yeah. to have. So what's really interesting is, is another fact about Marsden, the creator of Wonder Woman, is that she, he was also involved in the creation of the lie detector. Oh. And so the lasso was sort of like his nod to the lie detector That's and being so able to wrap cool. something around somebody and have them tell the That's truth. That's sick. Which is That's way better than a signature. Right? It's kind of neat, but at the same time, you have a lasso and you have these these uh, bracelets that like block bullets and stuff, you know. And and compared to characters like Batman who had gadgets as well at that time, Batman originally used guns. We're not going to talk about that, but in the forties, he did use pew, some guns. Pew. But in in addition to that, he also had his batarangs, bat grapples, all that sort of stuff. His gadgets that 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 make Batman Batman, but they're a lot more offensive and a lot more gun oriented. They're a lot more active. Whereas hers are a bit more defensive until she receives things like a shield and, and a sword. And that's really only because of her Greek, ancient Greek origins rather than just her as a, as a superheroine. So, yeah, yeah that's an excellent point uh, and definitely something to think about as we continue. But with that in mind, what a great segue I just came up with out of nowhere. We will move on to Katie's first pick. And this is, so I wanted to start with superheroes and female superheroes. But the next most significant, if not even more significant in some ways, contribution of female characters to comic books are the love interests. And so we are going to talk about Katie's ask for Gwen Stacy, of all people, which is a really interesting choice. Because when you think of love interests, you think of Lois Lane, you think of Mary Jane Watson, you think of all these people. But but Gwen Stacy is a really, really great pick. And I know it's partly because you love Emma Stone. Do you love Emma Stone? <laughs> I'm legit so happy that you chose Gwen Stacy because it gives a really interesting lens that you might not otherwise think about when it comes to love interests. Because, of course, you can say the general things of, like, you know, damsels in, distr- in distress, they, they get caught all the time. They're there only to fight with the hero about being the hero. They're only there for the, for the sake of having a romantic subplot so that you can get other readers interested in your book and all that sort of stuff. But Gwen Stacy really reveals some interesting thing- things in terms of, like, whom they choose for love interests and what makes a love interest and that sort of thing and how she's different from others and similar from other- to others and-, and that sort of thing, so... So away we go. All right. So Gwen Stacy, starting with her origin and kind of her importance as a character. Uh, Gwen Stacy was originally, when she was conceived, she was originally somewhat sarcastic and mean to Peter, which is really interesting based on other interpretations that we've seen. Uh, talking about Emma Stone in the Amazing Spider-Man series, she wasn't like mean to Peter, but but Gwen Stacy was a popular kid in, when she was conceived in, I believe it was the late 60s or early 70s. I think it was the late 60s or mid 60s. In any case, she was, she was a pretty early character. It was when Spider-Man was still in high school originally in the comic books. But by the time he was in the 70s, in the 1970s, Spider-Man was actually in university. So, like, his high school career in the comic books was pretty short in terms of his actual continuity. So she was, But she was a character from high school. And so other characters I want to mention, Flash Thompson is the, is the bully at the high school. For, for those audience members and possible podcasters who don't know much about Spider-Man, there's Flash Thompson. Uh, and then there's also Harry Osborn. Harry Osborn is the son of the Green Goblin, who's like the Joker to Spider-Man in terms of like arch nemesis level. Harry Osborn is also Peter's best friend, but also sometimes not best friend. It sort of depends on, on what you're reading it's or what you're watching. It, it is actually really complicated. Yeah, because often enough, Harry Osborn is actually sort of a, a also a dick in high school. And then in university, he needed a roommate. And so Peter ended up being his roommate. And then they started to bond that way and that sort of thing as well. So... A bit of a, a difficult history for the two of them. In any case, the point is, is that in high school, Gwen Stacy ran with this kind of a crowd. She was friends with Flash Thompson and Harry Osborn and these sorts of people. She was not really into Peter and was kind of an asshole and somewhat sarcastic and mean to Peter. Because she was depicted at first as this gorgeous like high school crush that Peter had. And Peter was a nerd, you know? And this is back in the 60s when a nerd for Spider-Man meant that he wore sweater vests and wore glasses and like was such a nerd. And so it was, they were really playing on that idea that like she was this unattainable kind of person for him because no one would want to go out with Peter who looked like that or whatever, which is its own comment on, on women and love interests in, in comic books. So that's kind of where she started. 
the visual inspiration for Gwen was Stan Lee's, Lee's wife, Joan, which is Aww. really interesting. So Gwen Stacy was, was modeled after his wife, which is just the most Stan Lee thing ever. Like, of course it was. <laughs> In any case, the problem for the character came from Stan, who, along with other Spider-Man writers, liked writing Mary Jane more than they liked writing Gwen Stacy. So by the time we get to about the 70s in terms of Spider-Man's continuity, so about a decade or so after they started making Spider-Man comics, they introduced, well, they introduced Mary Jane a little earlier, but by the 70s, it was sort of a contention of like, it wasn't a love triangle necessarily because Peter and Gwen were together at this point. They had like fallen in love and they were in a committed relationship. But Mary Jane was always this sort of character who was there and she was flirty and, and, and you know, beautiful and all that sort of stuff. And so... Peter kind of went through a, a, a moment often enough of like, do I want to be with Mary Jane or I, I should stay with Gwen and, and that sort of thing. So Mary Jane for a little while was actually a bit of the temp, a, a temptress character while Gwen Stacy was alive, which is really interesting to think about as well. Yeah, so there's that. Okay, but the main thing she's known for, of course, Gwen Stacy, is dying. So this is our first instance of a refrigerator character. She is literally, <laughs> like, like, like up until her death... She was just kind of like a, like a character. People loved her and cared about her. Like, they were fans of Gwen Stacy, for sure. But in terms of her impact on Peter's life and, like, long-term effects for the character, it didn't come until she died in the 70s. And when she died, it, like, it really sobered Peter up in terms of how he had to act as Spider-Man and that sort of thing. And, and, and we'll get into it. So, this is really the first time a character in comics was, was killed. Like, a famous long-form character, a part of the main cast, was killed. This isn't like Uncle Ben or Batman's parents. This was an established character who was alive throughout the story who they then decided to kill. Also, she was killed for the sake of plot, which is, uh, again, a commonality, especially for female characters. Uh, <laughs> I wrote in my notes here. Before anyone says, like, well, they did this with main characters too, like with Jason Todd, the second Robin, you know, he also died at some point later on in the 80s. But what I'm saying is that death for the sake of plot, as we'll see with other female characters, happens a lot for female characters and, and only occasionally for male characters. They are used as plot points to, to drive the story instead of just being characters themselves. Okay, so the history leading up to her death, the, the, the acclaimed moment, is that Gwen was more boring in the comics at this point. She was kind of like... Oh, I love Peter, blah, 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 or whatever. That's kind of how people started to perceive her. It's just sort of like every, every, <laughs> every comic issue, she was just sort of like in love with Peter. And like, that was like, you know, it's kind of one noted at that point, which is not her fault. It is the fault of the people who are writing her. Just sort of change it up and make her more interesting. But anyway, I digress. The, uh, to solve this problem, editorial decided to kill her father. So this is before she died. They decided to kill her father and that she'd blame Spider-Man for the death. So she, she thinks that Spider-Man killed her dad but he didn't, obviously. And so it, it was meant to spice things up in their relationship. Like, she hates Spider-Man but loves Peter. And so, like, it was supposed to make their, their interactions more interesting and engaging for the readers. But it, it wore thin surprisingly quickly and they realized they made a bit of a mistake. In that, like, soon enough, it was like, hey, Peter, I hate Spider-Man. Why do you keep taking pictures of him? Why do you keep talking about him all the time? Why are you always around Spider-Man? <laughs> you know, all that sort of stuff. And so it suddenly became a real strain on the relationship. And then... Like, for the sake of continuity and for the sake of character development, they're like, now we have to focus more on that and we just want them to be happy. It, it just, it didn't seem like there was a good way to have this relationship work at this point in time. So, eventually they got so fed up with Gwen that, and, and also more interested in other characters like Mary Jane, that they decided to kill Gwen. So the story for killing her is actually surprisingly weird, like the backdrop for it in terms of what the writers were doing. There, there are a lot of sort of bits and pieces of this story, uh, different stories depending on who you ask. For most of them, the commonality is that Stan Lee was not involved, which might be a bit of BS. We don't really know. <laughs> but the idea was that, like, there was a... Stan Lee was going on, on a trip to Europe for some reason. And so some grad stories trip. have him packing... What? Sorry, I just said grad <laughs> trip. <laughs> you know? Yeah, of course. So, <laughs> so some stories have him packing for Europe and he's in his office. Other stories have him in a hotel room in Europe when this decision was made, but in either case, Stan was distracted and accidentally okayed the death of Gwen Stacy. That's the idea of the story. Is that like, like the, he, he was editor in chief of Marvel at this. I see the faces guys. <laughs> he was at, it's just wild. Yeah. Like they wrote themselves into a corner and they're like, okay, <laughs> this it. is it. Yeah, exactly. And so, so he was editor in chief of Marvel at the time, but because Spider-Man was his like favorite character, 
he still was pretty hands-on in terms of the writing of the stories, but there were two other people involved. One, one was a writer named Jerry Conaway, who was the writer of Spider-Man, and the artist was John Romita Sr. And so Conway and Romita Sr. sort of thought about killing Gwen Stacy and then went to Stan's office and was like, hey, we want to kill Gwen. What do you think of that? And he was and like, he was yeah, like sure, I'm whatever. trying to pack my swimsuit, okay? So just don't talk. <laughs> he was like, yeah, whatever. Who cares? Like, like he just wasn't listening. Or he was in Europe and the connection was bad on the phone and he didn't quite hear it right. <laughs> like, Such a stretch. What- oh my God. <laughs> Imagine he's reading that comic for the first time. Like, let's say he didn't so, remember. So, yeah, yes. yeah. He's like, yeah. Oh so gosh. by the end of the story, it's, it's regardless of how it happened, he seemingly has plausible deniability. He comes back to the States after his trip to Europe and Gwen is dead. And he's like, What? <laughs> When I left here, she was alive. What's going on? So the point is that when she died, there was actually serious outrage from fans. So there were letters, there were phone calls. There were legitimately protesters at a college where Stan was going to give a lecture. Like Stan was giving a lecture at a university and there were protesters with signs being like, why did you kill Gwen? And that sort of thing. As they should. Yeah. So like everyone. Like, I didn't mean to. It's like, <laughs> I, was I was packing my swimsuit. <laughs> I was in Europe and I, I didn't know that was my best family. I didn't, I didn't do great. <laughs> Any New York character. Yeah. <laughs> I love Spider-Man. All right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Incredible. Thank you very much. Okay. So again, the deaths of characters were really, really uncommon. And so, you know, fans were really invested in the story and, and confused and, and annoyed that, and angry that Gwen died. So that's kind of the story of her death. In the actual comic book, it's essentially she leaves for Europe for a bit because she's so, like, I don't know, I, I forget. She's either, like, distressed about her father being dead or angry at Peter or whatever, and they sort of need to have a bit of a break. And so she goes to Europe for a bit because, like, that's what people in comics do, I suppose. Mary Jane, in her absence, keeps flirting with Peter while, at the same time, she's technically dating Harry Osborne. And so Harry Osborn confronts her and she essentially dumps him and says that they were never serious. It was sort of like, a, like he was like, I thought we were like in a relationship. He's like, nah, like, I don't do relationships. What are you talking about? Get out of here. Ouch. Yeah. Anyway, so, <laughs> so Gwen decides to return because she misses Peter. And when she returns, the goblin, the green goblin decides to kill Peeper. 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 <laughs> The goblin, the green goblin decides to kill Peter because he, at this point in the comics, knows that Peter's Spider-Man, so he wants to kill Peter. So he goes to Peter's apartment, and it's sort of like a, um, oh, I'm blanking on the literary term for this. It was like a, like a comedy of errors, maybe, might be the best word for it. Like, he goes to his apartment expecting to find Peter and kill him, but instead, he finds Gwen, who just arrived from Europe, and, like, just kind of walked in the door and was like, oh, Peter, I'm back, and, and Green Goblin's there. And Green Goblin decides to kidnap Gwen and leaves a pumpkin bomb as a sort of calling card situation. <laughs> and uh, Peter comes home and he sees Gwen's bag and the bomb and realizes what happened. And he goes to the George Washington Bridge, which is famously actually drawn as the Brooklyn Bridge. It's a very ah. weird sort of moment. In any case, he goes to the bridge. Green Goblin's there. And very similar to the first Spider-Man movie, Green Goblin has Gwen Stacy at the bridge and drops her off the ledge. Essentially... Peter has to go and try and save her and he jumps off the bridge and the, the famous moment is that he takes one hand and he onomatopoeia thwips, <laughs> which is literally, literally the sound effect. So he, he, he thwips his web and tries to, to grab her, uh, but the force is too much that essentially it, it like back flashes and her head, like whiplash essentially breaks her neck. So he's responsible for killing her. And that's the big thing. And literally the cops show up afterward and they're like, what happened? And he looks at them and he's like, Spider-Man killed Gwen Stacy. Ah! And then runs away. Because he's just so distraught and sad and upset that he just like, he's so guilty. He just tells the cops that he's, he's responsible. In any case, this has a real long lasting effect on Peter. In comic books, you often see him try and save people with two hands instead of one after that, that sort of thing. Like there, there are a lot of subtle nods that way in terms of how the death affected him but it was also a really big moment for peter as a character to try and move on and, and grow up a little bit it's also a bit of a moment for mj which is like you know up until this point she's been seen as really flighty and and that sort of thing but she actually sort of rejects her lifestyle a little bit at the end and, and stays to comfort peter uh who's grieving the death of, of gwen and sort of demonstrates her growing up a little bit as well 
so that's Gwen. That's her story. That's that's what happens to her for a long time. She's a, an interesting case study in terms of how love interests work, how they sometimes are frustrating for comic book writers. But Mary Jane is really involved in this decision to kill Gwen. So most people liked writing Mary Jane more than they liked writing Gwen Stacy. And so they kind of wanted to kill a character anyway. At one point it might have been Aunt May, but they decided to, to go with Gwen Stacy. But they, overall they liked writing Mary Jane more than Gwen. There's a big contrast between the two characters, if you haven't noticed already. Mary Jane is more of a free spirit, and she's sexy and sensual and all that sort of stuff. Gwen Stacy, on the other hand, is portrayed as sort of like the girl next door, more of a straight-laced, conservative-looking look for a character. And so there's a really big contrast in terms of how femininity is represented between these two characters. It's important to note, though, not just about sexuality of the female character, but also about the kind of character they wanted Peter to be which is its own comment on gender. So I'll get into that very quickly. Essentially, historically, when writing Spider-Man, all writers have a struggle of keeping him young. Partly, that's because they're sort of struggling with their own mortality. Like, they grew up with Spider-Man, and now they're writing Spider-Man, and they don't want him to be 40 and married and whatever, <laughs> and everything like that. And so they, they really struggle keeping him young. And it's also just sort of Spider-Man as a character. It's supposed to be a younger character. That's, that's the, the draw for his sort of ethos as a person. So trying to keep him young, if you think about it, Gwen is more of an older character, while Mary Jane is the kind of character that a 20-something would date, who's non-committal, wild, all that stuff. But the comment here uh, is that, for them anyway, all women go through this evolution, essentially starting like MJ and ending up like Gwen, that when you, it's, it's okay for a woman, they're sort of like underlying comment that they're, that this is a bit of analysis I've made, I suppose, but like sort of the underlying comment of their work is that like at a young age, women are allowed to be frivolous. Like while they're still young, they're allowed to have that sort of, I'm not gonna date one person attitude and that sort of thing. But as they grow older, they they need to turn into someone who's more like Gwen. Like that, that's kind of what they're saying about these sorts of characters. And now speaking of Mary Jane, there's a quick moment I wanna talk, talk about with her. So Mary Jane herself, definitely more of a spitfire woman informed by the mid 80s and second wave feminism and ideologies of women uh, as empowered and on their own and being on their own. Her origin is kind of interesting because it, it exemplifies this liberated way of presenting a female character, but also having clear roots and sexualization of female characters at the same time. Like it, it's, it's a bit of both, which is really interesting. It is also one of my favorite introductions for a character ever because it's just, it's, it's, it's great. Uh, okay, so Aunt May wants to set up Peter on a blind date and he doesn't want to go. She was a running joke for a little while where Aunt May would be like, hey, you know, Peter, I, there's there's like the next door neighbor's niece, Mary Jane. She'd make a really great day. You guys should go out sometime. And he's like, uh, I don't know. Uh, blind dates are weird. And I don't know who she is. And Aunt May would say things like, well, you know, she's a, she's a really nice person or she's a wonderful personality. And he's like, oh, man, <laughs> I don't want that. What are you talking about? You know, and so there was this sort of like underlying who's Mary Jane? Who is who is this person for Peter growing up? So, yeah, so nice Watson girl next door is how uh, Aunt Mabel would refer to her. And so the gag is that, like, when she finally shows up at his door, when he finally says yes or, or, or is, give, is given no way out, and, like, Aunt May sets this up for him, when, when, she when he finally meets Mary Jane, she is fucking stunning. Like, literally, if you look up the image of, like, Mary Jane first panel, like, she has, like, light radiating from, like, she looks like Jesus. Like, it's, 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 it is, like, a panel that is, like, here's the gag, guys. She's actually really hot. Like, that's, that's supposed to be the, the, the joke that, that kind of plays into this whole thing. And she has this amazing line where she just looks at Peter and says, face it, Tagger, you just hit the jackpot. <laughs> Which is, like, literally the line. Holy. You know? So she's. She's fierce and she's sure of herself and she's empowered. But her whole introduction is based on the idea that pa that Peter won't fall in love with someone who's just nice. She has to be really pretty too. And so that's the kind of the example of like it's it's a back and forth. It's it's a bit of both. She has feminist origins, but she is also really controlled by the sort of sexualization of female characters at the time. So that's my little bit on Mary Jane. The last one I want to mention for this section is Invisible Woman. And I want to mention Invisible Woman because she's a very interesting kid. Yeah, you, yeah, Kate, you did not expect me to talk about Invisible Woman, did you? <laughs> Any Fantastic Four fans in the house? Come on. Anyway, so Invisible Woman is, is one of the members of the Fantastic Four. And I wanted to talk about her because she's actually a really interesting case in that she is both a love interest and a superhero. So she, she, she operates in both worlds. 
And so my my quick little analysis based on my research on her, which I find kind of interesting, is that she has powers, a costume, and she's on a team. She's a full superhero and a love interest. But I I would not place Reed Richards in this section. And that was the thing. Her 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 Mr. Fantastic, who's her husband, I would not put Mr. Fantastic in this section. I would put Invisible Woman in this section, though. And I think that sort of gives a, a underlying sort of current to what we're talking about. Like, it would work. He's technically a love interest, but he's never really represented in that way. He's the leader of the Fantastic Four. He's the smartest man on Earth, which is kind of debatable now, but whatever. He's the main character of the team. It's never that Sue likes Reed and wants him to be with her, and we follow that story. It's about, it's about Reed Richards. It's about Mr. Fantastic, who wants to be in love with Sue Storm, who's the Invisible Woman. So even in this context, there's a certain hierarchy when we think about it uh, critically. Now, additionally, her powers, kind of going back to what we were talking about with Liz and, and Wonder Woman, her powers are a lot more passive and defensive than literally any other member of the Fantastic Four. Mr. Fantastic has super stretchy powers. They use the punch people really far away. The Thing is a giant rock man who has super strength, and I love him so much. <laughs> and, then, and then there's the Human Torch, who like, can turn his body into fire and shoot fire out of his hands and that sort of thing. His fire powers. And then there's the Invisible Woman, who can turn invisible and create force fields. Those are her two powers, which are incredibly passive in comparison. She's about defense and, and the sort of maternal idea of protecting others. And in the comics, don't get me wrong, she is amazing. She, like, I, lo I love Invisible Woman. She's a great power set. She's a really interesting character when she's done right, but she's, she's been created in this role of a more of a passive superhero who's part love interest and part superhero at the same time. I think, too, like, for a lot of men like the ideal woman would be an invisible woman right mm -hmm. like someone who comes and can come and go and you yeah. know leaves you alone and that kind of thing uh, at least like if we're talking more historically obviously not as much now but yeah totally absolutely yeah, yeah. and she was she was the the fantastic four were the first marvel comics superheroes in the 60s like stanley's first creation was the fantastic four so Neat. yeah 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 so yeah this is, yeah, definitely has all those sort of overtones in it. Absolutely. So uh, that's the end of this section. These four examples, Gwen Stacy, Mary Jane, Lois Lane, and Invisible Woman, they represent four common ways in which love interests are presented in comics and how that reflects cultural ideas of their time. So that's them. That's the sort of love interest ep uh, 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 part of the episode. Are there any questions before we move on? I don't think so. That was very comprehensive. Lots of cool, examples. Thanks, Loved all the examples. Yeah? All right. Yeah. We having a good time? Good we're having room. a good we're time. Good. Yeah, yeah, we're having a great I'm time. Learning so much. Yeah, right. same. It's crazy. Awesome. Okay. So the next one, uh, once again, comes from from Liz, and this is the time where we're going to talk about female supervillains. The other sort of flip side to everything we've been talking about so far, women as antagonists. Yeah. So beyond heroes and love interests, women are obviously often villains in superhero comics. There's sort of a, a Supervillains are normally absurdly sexual, particularly when they're women. So, like, yeah, all women in comics are needlessly sexualized, but supervillains make it a part of their persona so fucking often. It's that they're, like, they can manipulate you and that sort of thing with their feminine wiles or whatever. So it, it really reveals... Supervillains in particular... Thank you, Liz, for suggesting this. It, it really reveals the sort of societal fear of, of female sexuality and, and their harnessing of it in particular, and the fear of women knowing how their sexuality can work and how they can use it to their advantage. The sort of social fear that way. So there are countless examples like Cheetah, who's a Wonder Woman villain, Enchantress, who's a Thor villain, Mystique from the X-Men, and so on. But I want to look at a few particular examples from Batman. And starting off with Liz's uh, interest in Harley Quinn and her relationship with the Joker. So Harley Quinn has a very... I mean, this is going to sound old by now, but she has a very interesting origin story. <laughs> she was made... For TV with Batman the Animated Series from the 1990s. Originally, she was really just another colorful goon for the Joker. It's like, here's an episode with Joker in it. We need someone to wheel in the exploding cake. So we have a woman who's dressed in like a jester's looking outfit. And that's all she was. But her character soon really registered with fans and resonated with fans. And it, it, they sort of started complicating her character and making it more in-depth and, and sort of exploring her in more detail. And yeah, and, and eventually she became such a huge, now especially, such a huge icon in, in comic books and in other media as well, of course. So that's sort of Harley Quinn's little origin 
which is really interesting. Uh, in terms of the sexualization of her as a villain, she's definitely sexualized in her outfits, for sure, but she's particularly sexualized in sort of a Southern Belle kind of way. Uh, if that makes any sense, that's the best. I was trying to figure out how to like describe it, and that's really the best I can do is that she's just she's really flirty in the way that like sort of the classic archetype of a, of a, a woman from the South is, and that's sort of like oh well, really friendly, but like you know <laughs> I don't I, I don't know how to describe it, but that's that's how she is portrayed. Now we'll get back to to the sexualizing of female villains in a moment, but of course with Harley Quinn, the most important thing to discuss and the thing that Liz wanted me to talk about is her relationship and connection to the Joker, and some form of exploration into love and abuse, with uh, some uh, creators focusing on the former and some creators focusing on the latter. So this is the, sort of the first moment where we're getting into a bit more difficult material, a bit a bit more uh, uh, stuff that might be hard to listen to. So I just want to take a moment if if, if listeners need to take a step away for this that's totally fine i will try and keep it as as light and kind as possible but at the same time these are serious issues that we got to talk about in serious ways so okay this is the the next comic that we'll be looking at here it is written by paul dini and it's named uh, mad love is the name of the comic book it's cre creators paul dini and bruce tim who wrote harley quinn into the animated series batman wrote a comic it's called mad love which tells her story with the Joker, like her love story, essentially, with the Joker. Uh, so that's what this comic book does. So, in the comic book, she continually tries to gain the Joker's affection, but she, he's too busy planning his next scheme against Batman, so that's the sort of setup for the story. He won't pay attention to her, and she's feeling like he doesn't love her anymore. And so, it's this sort of moment of, like, I'm madly in love with the Joker, but he just, he cares more about Batman than he cares about me. What the heck? And she's angry with him, but overall wants uh, to win his affection. So she takes one of his plans, which means capturing Batman and the whole thing with piranhas. It's a very interesting convoluted thing. Of course. Anyway, <laughs> so she captures Batman herself and tries to kill him for the Joker. That's the, the plot of, of the comic book. To win him over. Hoping that this will bring his attention back to her. But he only gets upset. Because he, he wants to be the one to kill Batman. That's kind of the, the end moment. It's like, I, I need to do this. You're like, you're my henchwoman. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't want you to take the credit for this sort of thing. So it's, it's a big sort of like exploration of what it means to be in an abusive relationship. Someone who won't love you back no matter what. And the comic book ends with him throwing her out a window and fighting Batman on his own. They're both captured. But instead of learning to move on from the Joker at the end of this story, the book ends with her in a hospital bed where she's looking over a desk and there are flowers from the Joker, and the card reads, Feel Better Soon, Jay. Aww. And it makes her grin, and that's how the book ends. And so the end of the, uh, the, end of the story is literally her falling back into abusive patterns and, and that sort of thing. So a pretty difficult and grim sort of story for Harley Quinn, for sure. The point of the story was to explore the idea of mad love, as is the title of the book. Paul Dini gives a forward in the book where he says, uh, and I quote, We've all done it. We've all selected the wrong partners, all gotten hurt, and hopefully all moved on wiser from that experience. But there are those who, even in the face of constant disappointment, continue to believe that the intensity of their desire will be rewarded by an eventual jackpot of affection. So that's kind of his take on what mad love is and, and Harley Quinn's story. I would say this is a less than critical look at abuse, to put it mildly in some ways. It's an interesting story, but, but I, I don't think it's really critically looking at abuse in the way that it, it maybe ought to. Uh, but it's essentially what he's talking about. The troubled reality of abuse is that it often leads to relapse and that sort of thing. But in a story about relapse of abuse, you need at least one character to talk about it as abuse. Like, no character in Mad Love mentions to Harley, hey, the Joker's abusive and you should get away from him because he's, he's, he's a horrible person. Eventually they kind of have Poison Ivy fill that role in later comics, but not in this one. And so she's sort of left to, to relapse on her own. And that's kind of my, my subtle problem with this book. I find it a little problematic because it could lead real people to thinking that this kind of love is okay and if, if not actually desirable. And you actually see that often enough, unless, at least in like, let's say maybe 10 years ago. You know, when Harley Quinn was really starting to, to, to gain traction as a really, like, iconic figure in comic books, for people to be like, man, I want someone to love me the way Harley Quinn and the Joker are. Like, that's such a raw, ah, romance. Like, sort of Fifty Shades of Grey vibes to it, that sort of thing, you know. that that That's kind of how the relationship's been portrayed. Often enough, couples will cosplay as the Joker and Harley Quinn at Comic-Cons, that sort of thing. 
without really thinking critically about the very abusive nature of their relationship. I don't think, yeah, I don't think in the comic book that you're reading from that her origins, like, there's a different origin story for her as well where Dr. Harley and Quinzel, who yes. was treating Joker at the, the Harkham Asylum, Harkham, Arkham <laughs> Asylum, mm-hmm. and um, ends up falling in love with him and mm-hmm. falling into a vat of toxic sludge and then becomes crazy and becomes Harley Quinn and is always chasing the Joker. And I, I think that's really interesting, too, that, that she's the perfect woman, but she's also very asexual and that she's, mm-hmm. you know, a doctor and, like, her fall from grace and then into promiscuous yes. is, like, a really interesting... And, like, you can't be promiscuous and a doctor. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's yeah. very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is, yeah, her that, that part is in, in the origin in the in the Mad Love comic book as well. Yeah, this sort of, like, she, she thinks that she's going to be okay treating the Joker, and the Joker automatically just manipulates her right away and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that's all in there, too. But, yeah, so that's that's the general story of Harley Quinn and, and her origin and all that sort of stuff. Since this book, she's had a major revamp, particularly through her relationship with Poison Ivy, who's helped Harley split from the Joker, and writers have sort of made her into more of an anti-hero or at least a protagonist of her own stories often enough and that sort of thing. So Harley Quinn now is often portrayed in more of more of a sort of hopeful way for survivors of abuse. But I just think, you know, in, in a book like this and in the origins of this character, it really shows that, like, the, the creators of her may not have entirely thought about the serious gender-based implications of what they were doing in this story. So that's Harley Quinn. Uh, and I wanted to briefly look at a few other Batman villains who really exemplify this weaponizing and demonizing of sexuality. I think Batman's are, villains are actually a really great example of this, just because Batman comics are inspired by pulp and detective comics and sort of James Bond even, all of which have the sort of dame, femme fatale sort of vibe to their characters, where they're not entirely evil necessarily, but they are absolutely sexual. So the, the, the obvious one that we got to talk about is a woman named Poison Ivy, who is Jordan, my partner's favorite supervillain, because she's so sexual and owns it and it's awesome. And when it's done right, it's done in very empowering ways. But it, when it's done wrong, it's, it's not as much. So in any case, her character is intrinsically tied to sexuality and its weaponization. If you don't know who Poison Ivy is, she literally kisses men and either places them under her control or kills them. Like, she has venom in her lips. And she like if she blows a kiss, she can control your mind or kill you immediately. And, and she also represents Mother Nature and that sort of stuff as well, and plant life and, and everything. And Eve is a big influence on this character, yeah. for sure. She represents the fear of women, their ability to control men, particularly through their sexuality, that sort of thing. And yeah, she's particularly depicted as the temptress, t- temptress stereotype. So I have a great... So in Long Halloween, there's a great moment for her that really exemplifies this, where she says... Long Halloween, by the way, is a graphic novel for Batman. She says... You know you can't resist me. And then we turn the page. No man can. Mm-hmm. And it's, she's just like almost devouring Bruce Wayne in this one shot. Where she's like what? putting him under her control. But yeah, that's the kind of thing that this character does. Like she's always in these poses of latching onto these men. Her vines are wrapping around them. Showing her influence and that sort of thing. On these, on these characters. So since her creation, she's uh, sometimes been given anti-hero stories or at least more agency for her identity. She's been depicted as proud of her sexuality, of course, and embracing her sexual power. And sometimes a character, particularly with Harley Quinn, is they're depicted as friends, but often they're also depicted as a couple, which is interesting. A non-monogamous relationship as well, actually. But this is a more like a casual relationship than like a three or four person relationship itself. Uh, so yeah, so there's that. And then Catwoman is the last one I want to mention for this section. Catwoman, she's interesting because she's a love interest for Batman. So she's a villain, but often more of an anti-hero as well, especially in more recent decades. Now, are you ready to come quietly, Catwoman? I guess so, Batman. Batman, can I ask you a favor before you send me up the river without a paddle? What is that? Can I freshen up a little bit with makeup? I mean, my image might be damaged if I was seen in public... With a shiny nose. Yes, go ahead, but don't try anything untoward. Her or her origin is fucking nuts. So she she's always had this villain love interest dynamic. Uh, they wanted to add some kind of sex appeal, but also want to attract women readers. Oh, holy Heidelberg, what'd you do that for? I'm a 
afraid we've been drugged, Robin. I guess you can never trust a woman. You made a hasty generalization, Robin. It's a bad habit to get into. But so originally she's a former flight attendant turned jewelry thief. Like, that is her, in the 40s when she was created, that was her origin story. So she went from flight attendant okay. to jewelry thief. You know, very stereotypically female roles, even thief slash cat burglar are less violent than like an assassin or something like that, right? Uh, Bob Kane, who is one of the creators of Batman, although Bill Finger really deserves far more credit. We don't have time to get into that right now, but Bob Kane is the person we're going to talk about for the moment. He said the following about creating Catwoman, really showing his hostility for women in general <laughs> and how Catwoman was severely shaped by her gender and the sexism of the 40s. Okay, and I quote here. I feel that women were feline creatures and men were more like dogs. While dogs are faithful and friendly, cats are cool, detached, and unreliable. I feel much warmer with dogs around me. Cats are as hard to understand as women are. Men feel more sure of themselves with a male friend than a woman. You always need to keep women at arm's length. We don't want anyone taking over our souls, and women have a habit of doing that. So there's a love-resentment thing with women. I guess women will feel that I'm being chauvinistic to speak this way. But... <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> what? But I do feel that I've had better relationships with male friends than women. With women, once the romance is over, somehow they never remain my friends. My... Huh, I wonder why you have so many <laughs> issues. Yeah, it's definitely all women. It's nothing to do with you. No, no, no common yeah, denominator yeah, there. My, my note for this is, have you ever tried just being their friend, Bob, and not only seeing them as potential romantic partners? Thanks, Bob, for being the worst. Anyway. Oh, my God. Yeah, he sounds like the perfect man to write a woman. Yeah, right? Yeah. Well, it's just so funny to me because he's like, yeah cold, detached, manipulative, and I'm like, that sounds more like a man than a woman to yeah. me. Yeah. Like, totally. whoa, men are dopey and faithful and cuddly. And like, mm. Yeah. So, that's, uh, from this description through the 60s Batman TV show to more modern takes, she's always very sexual. She has leather outfits, she has a whip, like, all that sort of stuff. In Batman Year One, to sort of drive home this very sexual framework for Catwoman, in, in Year One, which is a very famous graphic novel from the 1980s by Frank Miller, Miller reimagined Batman and his whole world, providing a far grittier and more realistic tone. And so, as an origin for Batman, it also presents us a new Selina Kyle, a new Catwoman. And this Catwoman is a prostitute! Uh, of course. <laughs> you know? Because, right? Anyway. So, that's that. That's, that's, uh, that's Catwoman. She's, uh, so, okay. On a brighter side, Catwoman has been more recently depicted as an anti-hero, or even more of a hero in many cases. Ed Brubaker is a really good comic writer who wrote an early 2000s run on Catwoman that reimagined her as more heroic, while still maintaining sort of her sensual, sarcastic, and clever personality. It turns the whole story into a sort of a crime noir character story about people who try and knock over systems and rules that are inconsiderate to others, so... It's a really interesting take on the character. She's seen as a lot more of a Robin Hood in that run. So if you ever want Catwoman, I think it's out of print right now, but I highly recommend Brew Baker and his run on, on Catwoman. It's a really interesting story. Okay, so that's villains. <laughs> I can't imagine what's that? left. How you doing, everybody? Patrick from the future here. You know, you ever have that experience where you know a lot about a thing, and so you just tell people about it for a long time, you just keep talking for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours about it, and to you it just seems like a few moments, but to the rest of the world it seems like quite a long time? Yeah, that, uh, that happened to us when we were recording this finale. Turns out I had a lot more to say than I thought, and my co-hosts were very gracious, and were hanging on every word, but we, uh, we all figured that, you know, a two-hour episode would be a little long, so we decided to, uh, to make this finale into a two-parter instead. So this is part one 
uh, part two will be coming out sometime soon, I'm sure. And we'll get into other stuff in, in the next part, but just uh, wanted to let you know that for our finale, we're, we're going big and we have this, this two-parter here for you. Digital Dust is reported on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Lenapawak, and Attawandaran peoples, on lands connected with the London Township and Somber Treaties of 1796 and the Dish with One Spoon Covenant Wampum. This land continues to be home to First Nations peoples, Métis people, and Inuit people, whom we recognize as the contemporary stewards of the land and waters we are on today. Digital Dust is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Edwards, Katie Gaskin, Patrick Kingen, and Robin Marshall. Sound design by Elizabeth Edwards. Audio transcription by Katie Gaskin. <laughs>